You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Rabbi Judith Halevi, Rabbi Emerita of the Malibu Jewish Centre, where she served as senior rabbi for over two decades, now retired to her home in Santa Fe, and currently serving as rabbi at the Taos Jewish Community. Rabbi Judith, welcome. Thank you. So uh, can you tell us a little about the Taos Jewish community? Our listeners may not even realize that there is a Jewish community in Taos. So can you share a little? Yes, there's been a thriving Jewish community in Taos actually for the last 40 years. And I know that because it's 40 years ago that I arrived in Taos, (laughs) a little more actually, more like 42, with two young children um, straight out of a complete Jewish community to wonder, how do I raise Jewish children in Taos, New Mexico? Well, it turns out, out of the hippie world and out of the moment that brought us all out of the 60s, uh, there were quite a number of Jewish people in Taos. And I was directed to the House of Taos Pizza Parlor, where Ron Kalem, who had gone through rabbinical school but chose instead to make pizzas in Taos, was holding a minion. And I'll admit it was mostly male, but there was a minion. And And a minion, just for our listeners, is a gathering. Is a gathering of 10 Jews who are doing a prayer service. And for many years, I led together with Ron, who has just passed away this May, and I buried him in our very own Taos Jewish Center Cemetery, which exists as a standalone Jewish cemetery, actually. And for a long time, it was meet in people's homes, and my house became Seder Central. And as I raised my children, my son was actually the first bar mitzvah in Taos that didn't come to Santa Fe to do the bar mitzvah. He's now 47, just to give you an idea of how long ago this is. And the uh, hallmark was really the spiritual energy that drove all of us out of mainstream America. And yet we wanted to have a Seder. We wanted Shabbat. And it was a a community that was loosely organized. Fast forward now 40 years. The Taos community is organized as the Taos Jewish community, the TJC, where I serve as rabbi. That's the umbrella organization. Uh-huh. with a board, and uh, we have about 85 families. Wow, wonderful. I thought there would be, when I said I'd do this job, 20 people, uh-huh. right? Not true. Uh, it is substantial. And we don't have a school right now, but I have four or five bar mitzvahs coming up wow. within the next six months. Wow. And the community, as in all small communities, When you don't have a critical mass, it splinters into various competing groups. That has now calmed down, and the community really does work together. 
due to the vision of various leaders in that community. We lost two of them last May and June. The two pillars died. And it's interesting to see Roger Lehrman and Ron Kalem, how the community has pulled itself together. I agreed to come to Taos once a month. It's not been a month yet. This will be the first month that it's only once a month because I'm not going to – I just canceled, right? But I am really there for life cycle and counseling as well as doing a full Shabbaton of Friday night, Saturday morning, and whatever else we're going to do, which now has been an add-on for some sort of event, movies and readings and – So I'm very involved. So it's really very vibrant. It's very vibrant, and I'm really happy with that because I come out of a much larger congregation now. And uh, to be back at my own roots is fabulous because I know some of these people for 40 years. I I can't help but think immediately the idea of getting rabbinic ordination and then spending your life making pizzas just makes me think, wow, where did I go wrong? Um, (laughs) (laughs) That never crossed my mind and and should have done it. Look, you mentioned at the very beginning, you mentioned that the the minyan um, at the the beginning of the community was a male, tended to be a male minyan, a male gathering of of men at at prayer. And I guess that leads to the gender question. Um, I'm aware that when I meet with male clergy, and we often have male clergy on on this show, um, I very rarely ask them about their gender, um, but I often do with female clergy, right. um, like yourself. And, and I, that's not because I think that female cl- clergy are an exception to a rule that needs to be studied and explored, but because I, I do believe that having f- female clergy opens up new avenues of faith communities that haven't been explored before. So I guess... My question to you, since you mentioned the gender issue from the very beginning, is is are you a rabbi regardless of your gender, or does your gender specifically inform your rabbinate? And the answer is yes. Okay. To both of these. Uh, obviously, I'm a woman, and applying for a job, you can obviously see that. But I didn't become a rabbi because I wanted to advance the woman's cause. As I am truly, I am now ordained 28 years ago, and I became a rabbi at midlife, no less, where there were very few women. I didn't think about that. I became a rabbi. It was the spiritual pull and the fact that I understood that though I had uh, certainly— come to New Mexico and then become involved in the great buffet that's out here. I was involved in the Sufi community and in the Buddhist community. And then I, of course, knew that I could do this with my own flavor and was supported by very powerful teachers. Along the way, it was suggested that I take ordination. I didn't start out to be the woman rabbi at the front of the field. However, leaving Taos and going to first Santa Fe, but mostly from Santa Fe to Los Angeles, I discovered that being a woman was the key element here. Going key in what way? I was in L.A. for no more than two weeks 
when and I was there to start something called Matifta, a center for Jewish uh, meditation, with my teacher, Rabbi Jonathan Omerman. And again, it was the female role. Jonathan was the star, and right. I was the administrator. Right? That's right. how I got to LA, and I didn't even question it. I I was grateful to be doing meditation work, etc. I was asked to go to a conference run by the conservative movement. Uh, which was then University of Judaism, now AJU. And it was a woman's conference. Would I lead a Shabbat morning? <laughs> In that Shabbat morning, without thinking about it, I asked, is there anyone who has never held a Torah? Oh. There were about 200 women there, and the service went on for about three hours huh? because I split it up into small groups most of these women had never held a Torah. Wow. This is 30 years ago, 29 years ago now. I still meet people who tell me what that meant. And from then on, the other feminists found me, right? So I ended up in that nest. I then, working with Rabbi Omerman, I still was not in a congregation, I started a group called Sarah's Tent. And though Sarah's Tent sounds like the feminist of the Western world, it was a combination. Uh, the woman named Savina Tuval, who was a well-known Jewish feminist who wrote a book called Sarah the Matriarch um, about Sarah being a priestess. Uh. Right. Buy it or not. And together we taught women's midrash – and I taught Rabbi Nachman as the second class to a group of people. It spread like wildfire. A midrash being creative commentary. So creative commentary and uh, unpacking texts that men had never bothered to, like, what did Jephthah's daughter think? You know, uh, who was killed, actually, because her dad made a bad promise. Uh, it, it's filled with interesting characters. We were just at the cutting edge of this. Huh. And it, it attracted women, but I also began to teach the class that I cared about, which was Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlov, which I had done even here in Santa Fe, and was guided by a story called The Seven Beggars. And that was with music and dance and, and creativity, because that's what I had done here. I had never been a straight-up rabbi in a straight-up congregation. right. And so the end of a long, wonderful story of Sarah's tent is they are still together. Uh. And it became all the husbands wanted in. It became completely gender, beyond neutral. And I, I'm now at the age where, you know, they are, they are most of them are in their 70s and 80s. And wow. I deal with these families still. So, and their life cycles and unfortunately losses. So a lot of this is, uh, sounds to me like bringing in a lot of people into the Jewish community who had been excluded in the past. And it sounds like from that conference that the sort of awareness, uh, you know, there wasn't even that awareness that we could step beyond certain boundaries. Absolutely. And I, I did it with such innocence. I really was not aware 
at that conference, I became friends with Rabbi Laura Geller and uh, it, it, people who then became my colleagues the rest of the time that I spent my next 25 years in Los Angeles. Right. But I stumbled in All right. and brought what I wanted to bring was the spiritual place, but spirituality alone needs a vessel. And this was, uh, it was perfect timing as far as I am concerned. But many things have changed and many sure. things have not. So let's ask some questions because <laughs> many things have not. I still remember in, in when I was a kid in, in my community um, back in London, I remember the first time a woman carried a Torah scroll around the community. And there was such buildup. Her name was Hannah. And I remember that. There was such buildup. What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? And so on. And um, and I was uh, uh, late childhood, you know, early teens sort of thing. And, and I remember sitting there and watching this happen and then just thinking, and? What just happened? That, so what? So a woman just carried a Torah scroll. But but we built it up into such a massive thing. That's right. That um, that it was a barrier that needed to be crossed, as opposed to it's just someone carrying a Torah scroll. That's right. And even I have to say, in a congregation that has followed me in Malibu into places they didn't expect, I had a woman from the very beginning who was the president of the synagogue. At the moment of giving out the big honors and Yom Kippur, I was asked not to give her the Torah, and it took a long time. Till it nobody blinked when women carried it around, and this is in a liberal congregation. Interesting. I look. I was for years. Uh, I went to visit communities in uh, southern England, and there was one community where one woman who I happened to meet in an airport did an, an extraordinary mitzvah, and I stayed in touch with her. I ended up being in her community, and I said to the community, "She needs to have an aliyah. She needs to come up to uh, the Torah." And they said, if that happens, then the president will walk out wow. of the service. I said, okay, so let him walk out of the service. But this is a this is a, a wonderful woman who's done extraordinary things to strangers. Who years later, I'm just saying thank you. Um, but yes, I understand. There's a real yeah. for some people real difficulty. Let's take a break and then let's come back to um, what this means because we're, we're looking at all these gender issues in Judaism, which has for so long been so strictly gendered. Um, so we'll uh, take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about Judaism and gender, I think. Bye. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom, my guest uh, this evening, Rabbi Judith Halevi, Rabbi Emerita of Malibu Jewish Center, and now uh, serving as Rabbi of the Taos Jewish Community. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom and my guest this evening, Rabbi Judith Halevi uh, from the Taos Jewish Community. We've been talking about um, Judaism and gender, particularly um, from the woman's perspective. I guess there are some communities today who um, still would not have a woman hold a Torah scroll um, and uh, would not have a woman involved in that uh, service. And they would connect that back and say, but that's how Judaism has always been. Um, can Judaism exist authentically post-gender? Is Judaism for you something which is inherently gendered and we have to break the paradigm? But if we break the paradigm, are we breaking Judaism or are we just saying, no, that was just a reflection of patriarchy or a patriarchal creation of Judaism or expression of Judaism? Where are you in terms of... Is Judaism inherently gendered? 
I think Judaism is incredibly dynamic. And if it wasn't dynamic, the two of us would not be sitting here as rabbis today. And um, a couple of months ago, I was asked to speak for the New Mexico Jewish Historical Society. And in the process, I looked at how Judaism is a tapestry. And there's a warp and a wolf. And the pillars, those, and I can never remember which one goes which direction, don't really change. Ah. Torah, Talmud, Israel, holiday cycles, life cycles, these pillars that hold us are firmly that which is the skeleton of Judaism no matter where and when we are, which is why we keep surviving. On the other hand, everything from uh, the dominant cultural attitude uh, to uh, what country you're living in to the time frame to is there a coronavirus, any of those things, because women of the plague had a certain role. They are what changed Judaism, but its essence doesn't change. Now, in my opinion, uh, biblical Judaism was much more gender equal. And you see it in early biblical stories. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, these women called the shots, man. I mean, they decided who inherits, and as God says to Abraham, listen to her voice. Listen to her voice, right. Right. And this week I've been thinking— But it's only about one specific thing. I know, I know. (laughs) But I've been thinking a lot about Passover right now, since all of us as rabbis are wondering what to do. And the beginning of the Passover story is a woman's story, totally a woman's story. They're all women characters. We can look at the Nile as a birth canal if you want. But certainly, baby Moses is surrounded by women who save him. Right. And even before him, Shifra and Pua. And Shifra and Pua Objecting step to the up Pharaoh. And, you know, you get Serach Bar-Dasher who knows where the bones are. I mean, you have all sorts of characters. This changes as soon as we have a patriarchal system, which is the priesthood. And it's very clear right. that women do not participate in the priesthood. Right. There is no Kohenit for all that we have tried, which is the feminine of the Kohen, which is the priest. Once you have made that switch, then it's many, 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 many years, and you look for exceptional women. Right. You gave me three exceptional women, and I want to get them into this program. Please. And I'd like to take them in reverse order. Okay. One was Regina Jonas, yep. who was the first rabbi who was ordained through a modern reform movement in Germany. She was ordained in 1935. Why has no one ever heard of her? Because people paid absolutely no attention to the fact that she got ordained. She never had a pulpit. She worked as a chaplain. I mean, she was like, okay, I'm a rabbi. Now what? Unfortunately, the now what was answered by uh, the Nazis, and she was very important in Theresienstadt. And in reading about her recently, she worked with Viktor Frankl, right. and she, she did tremendous things, completely unheard of. It was only when there were women in the Reform Rabbinate who started to look up our ancestors. It's not that we modeled ourselves on her. Oh, interesting. We went back to find role models. Right. And there she was. And, of course, she died, unfortunately, in 1944. She went to Theresienstadt in 1942, which is the year that I am born. 
I feel that I have been part of this next generation carrying it forward. Behind me are women who will find it somewhat easier, but believe me, the glass ceiling is still very much in place. But there was Regina, Rabbi Regina, and um, I am inspired by the fact that she held on and was of service even if no one was paying attention right. out there in the big world. Although they were where she was. Where she was. Teresa was particularly. But, but she, it took years until so anybody yeah. heard about her. Yeah. Another famous one is the Maid of Ludmere. Yeah. And the Maid of Ludmere is fascinating to me because she was a Hasidic out of a Hasidic, actually, she was close to the Chernobyl Rebbe, and she did writing. This is in mid-1800s, when there weren't any other women doing this. At one point, we had someone here in Santa Fe who was I used to call the Maid of Lubmir, my friend, Yehudis Fishman, and she really was a Maid of Lubmir, and she still is. She's in Boulder now and was my Torah companion. But I realized that she had to never marry, Right. Had to live like she was an exception, exception. And she ended up in Israel and had always a small group of people around her. So How- she, her, her story, if I may, is fascinating for me from a male perspective. I, part of my rabbinic thesis focused on her because the maiden of Ludmir had she, ha, she led a minyan to come back to what you were talking about. She led men in prayer. She used to wear the traditional garb of a talit and, and so on. Um, that that women had traditionally been told not to wear. And then what's fascinating for me is the difference between the real story of what happened to her and the community's story of what happened to her. And the real story is she moved to Israel and set up all these Rosh Chodesh groups and all mm-hmm. these women's groups and died a satisfied woman. But the folk narrative had to be different because it was a male folk narrative that said she married... And basically lost all her power as soon as she married. And, and for me, I find that fascinating as a man of how much do I, do I step in and, and, and remove women's power without realizing it or, or create that narrative. It, very, very interesting. And what you are expected to do and how much I, I – listen, I was the second head of the board of rabbis of Los Angeles, 320 rabbis. Even then, I was quiet in a room – when it had high-powered male rabbis in there. I, I kept my place. Wow. It, it was difficult, much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Right. And so the third figure that we talked about, and I want to get her in here today because she is my favorite, is Bruria. Bruria lives all the way back in the time of the Romans, right? In the beginning of the rabbinic period. She's the daughter of a famous rabbi, Rabbi Tered Dion, and he is martyred, her mother is martyred, and she rabbi she marries Rabbi Meir, who was a famous rabbi of the time, and she is known, first of all, she learned from her father. Right. Which the early rabbis in America also had rabbinic parents, most of them. Ah. And I've studied with a lot of women who they say, oh, yeah, my dad was the rabbi of whatever. Interesting, that very first group. But she married Rabbi Meir and was known as the woman who had all the answers all the time, right? Right. Which is never okay. And she's known as having told Rabbi Yossi the Galilean, you know, who he asked something, directions with four words. And she said, ah, you should only ask two words because you're speaking to a woman. You know, keep it short, etc. 
She is a very complicated character because I think she's my model as a rabbi on one level. And even as we're running out of time, it's important. When her sons died, and I am going to read this, there is a legend from post-rabbinic times that says, some time ago, what rabbi, what rabbi Meir comes home, her sons have died at Shabbat. Right. She makes the meal. She does the whole thing. Yes. And then says, some time ago a man came and gave me a deposit in trust. And now he comes to claim that deposit. Should I return it or not? And of course, Meir he says, says yes. my daughter, whoever has the deposit in trust, must he not return it to its owner? And she said to him, had you not said so, I would not have returned it. Breweria then took him by the hand and brought him to the room where their sons were lying and drew him near on the bed, drew him down to the sheet, and he saw the two of them were dead and collapsed on the bed, and he began to cry. And at the same time, Breweria said to Rabbi Meir, did you not say we must return the deposit to its owner? It is said the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She's a rabbi in her soul. She could have, right. you know, that's a rabbi in her soul. My hope is that I could be that rabbi. The end of the story is not a good one. No, it's not. Because, but the end was tacked on by Rashi 900 years later, right. let's and point so, out. And for the listeners. Jewish and Rashi, of course, is uh, the year 1100. Right. And he is considered our benchmark for all learning. And so, therefore, he is both molding and reflecting the time around him. And he tells the story that suddenly Rabbi Meir fled to Babylonia. Why? Because, according to Rashi's story, he had uh, tricked his wife. Uh, It was a setup. And uh, because women are of lightheaded, as translation, sexually, they will be led astray. Right. And sets her up with a student, and eventually she gives in. She finds out that he knows, and she commits suicide. Right. So the pressure on women, whether it's a true story or not, that became part of rabbinic lore. Yeah. Like, don't dare go there, girls. It's not going to turn out to be so fine. But it's fascinating for you. I think it's really important for you to add that this is a male gloss hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years, of years later. later. You know, that that as Talmud is being written down, as the stories of Bururia are being written down, they are positive stories of a woman expressing, as you say, a rabbi in her soul. But later, just like with the maiden of Ludmir, it's the, no, know your place. We need to tell a different story that you need to know that if you transgress that boundary, then you cause trouble. Right. So where are we at the end of this conversation? I said the glass ceiling is still very much there. Uh, We are now ordaining women at a prodigious rate. Will they find jobs past second rabbi when you come right down to it? And the record has not been good. Chaplains, we have a lot of chaplains. And we have rabbis in small places. Like I was designed to really be a douse and not do what I did. But... I think that there is a seismic change happening, just as it happened with the whole gay and lesbian question. It's happened. Harder over women, right? but I believe the time has come. 
I think it would be wonderful to have you back to explore that next section um, of, of where does that journey go? I would love to come back. Call me. I'm happy to do this, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Judith Halevi from the Taos Jewish community. It really has been wonderful for you to really open up a very challenging and important uh, issue uh, about female clergy and, and what that means. And, and there's a lot of work that we obviously need to do and, and a lot of voices like yours that really need to be heard. So thank you for coming in. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Bash Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.